Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode originally aired on July 10th, 2013. It is a discussion of vampires. You can see the title. I trust you to know what's going on there. It features myself and Pat Mullen talking about a lot of vampires throughout the course of cinema and whatnot. No discussion of Dracula in particular. Dracula has his own episode, which should be re-airing shortly. Now, as mentioned, this episode originally recorded and aired in 2013, so there's a few more modern films and properties that are not discussed here. Uh, I would have almost certainly discussed A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is a very interesting, uh, slightly more artistic style of vampire film. It's an Iranian quasi-spaghetti western vampire. It's a really interesting kind of mashup of uh, genres, but a, a very, very interesting film. Uh, we There's no discussion of um, the... I suppose you could, we might have talked about the Netflix Castlevania series. Dracula's there, but so are a bunch of other vampires, and that, of course, would have prompted a, a non-trivial amount of discussion there. Uh, there's, but there's a lot of slightly more uh, recent vampires that are not discussed. Um, I'm discussing the vampires from Doctor Sleep. Uh, the book hadn't even been written, much less the film that had come out. Uh, what we do in the shadows, either the original film or the television series that has spawned out of it, uh, hadn't happened yet. So no discussion of that. Uh, just giving y'all a few uh, touchstones there for things that are not present because they had not existed. <laughs> they didn't exist when we recorded this. So uh, if you're interested in the discussion of those properties, I'd have to bring back the series. And at the moment, I don't think that's really on the table. There hasn't been some kind of great outcry of desire for it, so I'm kind of content to let things lie in the past, And when, as far as this uh, the show goes. Uh, before we get into the episode, before I throw it to my past self, let's pay a few bills here. Uh, we have a couple of sponsors, per usual. Uh, first up, we have Grammarly. For you listeners of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy here on the W2M Network, Grammarly is offering a free, not completely free, download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that is getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. If you'd rather not type that into a search engine, there's a link in the description below. Our other host, host, our other sponsor is Amazon Music. If you like music, and who doesn't, Amazon Music has an enormous library, well north of 70 million individual songs. And, you know, vampires have, sp have long been associated with uh, different kinds of music, depending on what kind of vampire story you're telling. Whether it's the more classical, symphonic stylings that went into the original Dracula films, the more 80s kind of synth-heavy stuff from the original Fright Night and The Lost Boys, uh, all the way through to more modern stuff. I mean, Queen of the Damned featured a pop star in the lead role, also featured um, Forsaken, sung by Disturbs David Draymond, all of which are available on Amazon Music. So if you're interested in that, go to getamazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork. 
fill out the little survey they say, tell them that we sent you there. You'll get 30 days to explore one of the largest streaming libraries of music, one of the best overall services in the entire music streaming genre. Genre. Uh, services. It's great. If at the end of 30 days you like it, you can start paying for it. If not, you got a free 30 days to try it out. There is no downside. So, once again, get amazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork, or click the link in the description below. Any of that works. All right, with that out of the way, uh, let me throw it to my past self and Pat Mullen back in 2013 talking vampires. Past me, take it away. When the devil is too busy and that's a bit too much, they call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm his fortune. To the ladies, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, any way, it's all the same. I'm the fly. Beneath your bed, I'm a bump on every head. I'm the hill on which you slip. I'm a hit in every head. I'm the thorn in your side. Makes you wiggle and ride. And it's so easy when you're evil. This is the life you see. The devil tips his hat to me. I do it all because I'm evil. And I do it all for free. Your tears are all the pay I'll ever Yes, good evening once again, and welcome to Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. I am your host, Robert Winfrey, and tonight we're talking very specifically about vampires. I've got a great guest, and before we get going, I do want to make one minor technical announcement here. If you want to hear about Dracula, this is not the podcast for you. There will be no Dracula discussion tonight. We are pointedly discussing all vampires, not Dracula. Uh, Come back next week, same day, same time, and we will talk Dracula specifically. So if you want to hear about Dracula next week, if you're done with every other type of vampire not named Dracula, you're in the right spot. We're here to talk vampires. Now, my guest today insisted on being part of the Vampires and Dracula group. He threatened me with physical harm, even though he lives in New York, and I'm pretty sure he, you know, nothing good comes out of New York, I think. But... He's here. He used to write for 411 Mania. He's been trying to get a comic book podcast off the ground unsuccessfully so far, but it's Pat Mullen, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome him back. How you doing, Pat? Good evening, Robert. Good evening, listeners. Yes, it is me, the thing that goes bump in the night because I guest host on this so often because I love the bad guys just as much as everyone else. And it's only appropriate I'm here on a night we talk about vampires because my prime hours are from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. My complexion is somewhat pallid, and I work with blood at night. Go figure. Eh, who'd have thought? You know, who'd have thought? Hey, you know, maybe you're out, maybe you work nights because you sparkle in sunlight and you're avoiding it. Robert Winfrey coming right out of the gate with a hard right hand. <laughs> I'm trying. Okay, I do want, since I just brought up the sparkly vampires, I want to, I know, Twilight, big button issue with everyone, rightfully so in many cases, I want to very briefly discuss a couple of aspects of this, of the Twilight Saga franchise whatever you 
want to talk about. And let me say this. It doesn't bother me that the vampires sparkle in sunlight. A lot of purists, you know, vampires are supposed to become, you know, you know sunlight kills them. That's a, that's a hallmark of vampires. They, they drink blood, sunlight kills them. They're stronger than people. And there's a lot of gray area. Vampire mythology has been screwed with and tweaked with and messed around with. Everybody who writes a vampire story has their own take on the mythology. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, if you've ever read Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I have, and I love it, but some of the rules for him, he can't pass over running water, there's rules about the tides, where he can go when the water's coming or going, there's all of these complex things, and a lot of that has been left by the wayside, and by and large, I think we're all better off for it. So my point with Twilight, I don't dislike that the vampires sparkle. I don't even dislike that they're... Uh, what do they call themselves, vegetarians or vegans or whatever they refer to themselves as. To me, it's just the fact that it's kind of a weak retelling of Romeo and Juliet was war what got my goat, but the amount of originality since Shakespeare is pretty much non-existent. So I, I did want to touch on that briefly. Pat, do you have anything to say on the, on that particular series, books, movies, fan fiction, et cetera? I I don't hate Twilight the way most uh, vampire purists, I guess you'd call them, do. Uh, I did, the sunlight thing is kind of a bothersome issue to me, because I think that, that that's one of the always mainstay rules, is that sunlight will, if not kill, at least substantially weaken and harm a vampire. So I had a little bit of a problem with that. Uh, I, I think Twilight is, you know, like you said, it's a, re, it's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet's The Capulets and the Montagues. I think it would have worked better, to be honest, were just uh, you know the, this this couple getting stalked by forces trying to keep them apart from different worlds, I I don't think the vampire element worked all that well for it for for a lot of people. I think it could have been just as effective if they were normal humans, but then they draw it into a whole big fanatical world, and I understand that, and it, it kind of blends one of the overt natures of the vampire, which is sexuality with love, without doing it in such a disturbing way to young adults who the series is geared towards. I think that I mean, was the ultimate it's a goal. teenage. It's aimed at teenagers, so there are rightfully so limits with what you kind of put out there. And you know, on a side note, kudos to uh, Stephanie Meyer for handling elements of that tastefully. That's not done very well very often, and I felt that she did well there. But I mentioned on the four one at the end of the four one one ground and pound radio show this last Sunday that Twilight is indirectly slash directly responsible for the rise in popularity of zombies over the last few years. Because, as you just mentioned, and has been mentioned many other times, vampires have this inherent kind of sensuality, sexuality, an appeal to being a vampire, to you know, all of that stuff. And it can get twisted around. I mean, look, there's you know, dozens, you know, thousands of Harlequin romance novels with vampires there. I mean, they're everywhere, and with Twilight, I think it just kind of reached the breaking point, and you know what will never be sexy or appealing or young adult-oriented or betray us to the romantic side? Zombies. Zombies will always be horror creatures. Always. And I've had that argument with plenty of people, and so you want to know why the, you have the awesomeness of The Walking Dead? It's because of Twilight. Maybe an odd connection, but I stand by that reason. So, Robert, who are you to talking... say that brain-eating is not sexy? Well, of course the brain-eating is. It's the rest of it. Okay, as long as we're on the same page there. Dude, brain... eating brains is awesome. Did you not hear my Hannibal Lecter podcast? I did. That's why I was a little bit taken aback by that, but I, I, stand, I stand corrected. Uh, I actually like that scene in the novel as much as I do in the movie, but again, different topic. So since we're talking vampires, and since we have mentioned 
vampires are not always creatures of horror, so to speak. That's kind of how I define them is they're a horror creature. They're originally horror creatures. I mean, almost every culture in the world has its own mythology that deals with blood-sucking fiends in the night. And that, I mean, that actually occurs in most uh, cultures independently dating back thousands of years. They've always been afraid of vampires, and rightfully so. Vampires are supposed to be scary. They don't always have to be, but I feel they're kind of supposed to be. But they have been reused for other purposes other than straight horror. So since we're talking about that right now, let's go to the opposite side of the spectrum since we've mentioned that vampires, again, since we're not talking about Dracula, but vampires that to you are scary, vampires that you double-check your bedroom door for, that you worry about. I mean, if there are some vampires that make you hang a cross on your door to keep them away, what what comes to mind if you're thinking of scary or intimidating vampires? I think the big one, and I think everybody, just from appearance alone, would agree, has to be originally Count Orlock, the, the vampire from the original film Nosferatu, played by the late German actor Max Schreck, whose name actually translates in German to Maximum Terror, so very apt. Hey, wasn't Max Schreck played by, uh, oh, I just forgot it, John Malkovich, William I think, Defoe. in the... Oh, William Defoe, yes, thank you. Yeah, he was played by Will in the uh, mock the movie about the, uh, I don't, I forget the title of the movie, but... It was uh, Shadow, of a, the, uh, Shadow of the Vampire. Shadow of the Vampire, of the Vampire yes. One of the two. Yes, thank you. Yeah, they a, make a, a, mock, a mock fictionalization of the making of a movie. In which Max Shrek is an actual vampire, played by William Defoe. Awesome stuff. I would agree. Now, one of the fun, and I know we kind of agreed not to talk too much about Dracula here, but I have to mention, since we're talking about Nosferatu and Count Orloff, you ha- you have to mention a little bit that if you've read Dracula, the original appearance of Dracula is not the for for want of a better phrase, the Bela Lugosi. He doesn't originally appear as the well-dressed, well-mannered, well-spoken nobleman that you know he becomes later, but originally he is described very insect-like. And I think that with Nosferatu, they actually stayed fairly true to his original description of Dracula. Yeah, he, there is not a more real terrifying-looking being than Count Orlok in, in Nosferatu. He is... You know, completely bald, no visible signs of hair on his head, uh, bat-like pointed ears, very jagged, rigid teeth in the front of his face, extremely long fingernails, deep-set, very dark eyes, extremely tall, extremely slender, uh, the, the long, long, jagged fingernails, just about as creepy as you can find. There's, you know, there's one particular scene where, Count Orlov, uh, you know, just levitates forward out of his coffin in the film, and it is still one of the scariest moments in any movie. I, I defy you not to be frightened by that to some degree. Well, you know, you you, you got to love the Germans. The German... <laughs> I think that was German, wasn't it? No, it, it was F.W. Murnau, yes. Yeah, so that that's German, like, uh, oh, I forget the phrase. Expressionism, something like that. I can't remember it. Ah, And it's going to bug me until I remember it, but I will later. Well, it's right along yeah. in the era of Metropolis and all of those German films that were released at the same time. Yeah, they're really kind of ethereal and odd. they're dreamlike in quality, and it's a very interesting uh, genre or style that you can st- that to study and to look at if you're a film student or what have you. But yeah, Count Orlock is a very creepy-looking... You know, to me, vampires kind of get scarier 
in a lot of cases, the less human they look. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, a vampire that just looks human and can walk among you and can still be scary. But, you know, when you see something like Orlock or, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of another decent example. Uh, okay, since we're... Uh, go ahead if you have one. I was going to say maybe the 30 Days of Night vampires. Oh, man, I want... I had I had a couple of issues with those vampires. I get what you're saying that they should, you know, they don't. Necess- you look at them and they, they kind of look off. They don't look human. Yeah, they they don't really look all that humanoid. They're kind of a bastardized almost version of Orlok to an extent with the teeth. My, my personal problem with that was watching the movie, and I know that the movie and the graphic novel have some differences, but in the movie, if you've seen it, they always walk around with these open mouths, kind of like they're always perpetually shocked at something, and I think it's just bad prosthetic yeah. work on their teeth. Yeah, that they overexpose that to to much too much an extent. It's it, you know sometimes like you were saying, less is more, and and to, yeah, it was just in the appearance factor. Of the, you know they'd look less human, but that was a case where they they had a good idea and it just was you know done to death because they didn't have any other ideas and just shot themselves in the foot. Yeah. Also, kind of in that same vein of not looking human, um, we would discuss that we're going to talk. We mentioned that we're going off there that we're going to talk about. For want of a better phrase, the Whedonverse vampires. And I thought that was a nice trick that he kind of came up with of the vampires can look normal or they can sprout fangs and alter their and the facial prosthetics that they get and they suddenly don't look human anymore. And in that respect, you know, they can go from being, I mean, specifically if you're watching like Spike or Angel and they're looking human and then all of a sudden, you know, a bit of that inner demon, the darkness within them comes out and it, it's a nice visual cue i mean i don't think the sequence if you for I, i'm gonna get a little buffy nerd here but there's a sequence in season two where angelus is chasing um oh the teacher that he winds up killing i forget her name but oh giles his girlfriend yeah yeah and I, I love that whole sequence actually but i don't think it's nearly as powerful if he doesn't have you know the vampire face on the whole time it just adds the extra element of uh, Jenny Callender, that's her name. Ah, my memory comes through again. But it just it adds that extra element of this is something not of this world that is chasing you and you definitely need to be afraid. I think that's part of the great duality of, of a lot of the vampires in, in, you know, myth, legend, folklore, television movies, is that there's, you know, they, they are cunning hunters at their base level. And so the fact that they have that ability to camouflage themselves, for lack of a better word, just like somebody wearing camouflage in the desert looking for an eight-point buck, and then sneak up on their prey while they're unseen, and then finally, instead of pulling a you know a bow and arrow or a gun out, this this change comes over them, and you see, oh wait, this isn't what I thought it was. It, it's it's very cool and was very well done, I thought. Yeah, I agree. And well, when it was done right, I mean, part of the greatness of that whole sequence of you know, is. You know the two big ones there obviously are Spike and Angel, and the acting of James Marsters and David Boreanaz to portray both of those characters. Spike starts out as a bad guy and gradually becomes more human. Angel has his soul periodically ripped out or put back in him, and it's just it's a credit to their acting skills as well that they're able to convey you know being more than just a mindless killing machine at times. Yeah, Boreanaz just has that ability to to look like, you know, a sad puppy who's just been kicked, and then all of a sudden, once that facial change comes over him and he embraces it, he, he he's the hunter. Yeah, his his ability to change, his his ability to emote with his face and to change on a dime like that is a real asset to him as an actor. I mean, he does it a couple of times. He does it throughout uh, his appearances on Buffy, 
more than a few times in the series Angel. Even, you know, we'll break out that same type of thing on uh, Bones if you happen to watch that. I mean, different character, obviously, but kind of the same technique there. So we've talked about, uh, we talked a little bit about that. I'm sure we'll circle back around to those guys again because I enjoy them. So I'm going to ask you, you know, what are your kind of low points for vampires? You know, what are some vampires that you think of that get you to roll your eyes a little bit? Because they are, there, are, there are some bad ones, and I don't just mean versions of Dracula, because there are some bad ones of those, too. But specific, if you can think of a specific movie or a character or sequences of, you know, again, books, comics, television movies, whatever, that just kind of makes you roll your eyes and go, really? Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely leave off the uh, bad iterations of Dracula because there's a few we can talk about next week. But uh, there, there, there were, there were a few, yeah, there, there were a few for sure. And uh, if I really have to single one out, it's kind of tough, but I may have to go with Robert Quarry's Count Yorga movie. And I feel okay. bad saying that. No, no, I, I, Ro- go ahead, go ahead. Explain yourself. Robert yeah, I'm, Quarry I'm not is, is not a you. bad actor. He, he's really not. And I think he does well with what he's given. But those movies are made to be so surreal and laughable while still trying to play it straight that they kind of have an identity crisis and you end up laughing very stupidly at parts throughout the movie. Uh, and the way the way the vampires are portrayed where there's seemingly no reactions given to certain things is, and I'll spoil some of the movies for you. So if you haven't seen Count Yorga, which I don't know how you haven't, if you like vampires and you're listening to this, it's been around since 1970 it was the first iteration. Uh, Count Yorga is seemingly killed for sure in the first movie. And yet he's inexplicably brought back in the second movie out of nowhere with no explanation given. Th- things like that where the movies clearly don't even take themselves seriously at that point. You kind of have to say, how am I going to be able to enjoy this if they're not even trying? And Count Yorga, again, is kind of the stereotypical vampire where he's wearing the dinner jacket and he's from Eastern Europe and he has the amulet on and kind of plays up the bad vampire stereotypes that have been set forth since Bela Lugosi's turn as Dracula. It's so sad that that gets that you know cause when you see the original Dracula movie, you understand how great Lugosi was in it. But you know, great things are, tend to be prone to uh, copying and mockeries. You go um, one of mine that I can't help but laugh at, and not necessarily a good way. I don't know if you've seen the movie Fearless Vampire Hunters or not. Oh yeah, Roman but Polanski. Roman Polanski, Ferdy Main as the vampire. It is so bad. I mean, it's meant to be comedy, so you know, don't get, don't don't get me wrong here. I'm not. It's not taking itself seriously, and I'm laughing at it. It's meant to be funny, and I'm still just kind of shaking my head at it. For, I mean, that movie. There's a famous. There was a famous interaction between Christopher Lee and Ferdy Maine around that after it was released. Apparently, Christopher Lee went up to Ferdy Maine and said, "How dare you make a mockery out of something that's supposed to be taken seriously?" Of course, he was joking when talking to the actor, but still. Yeah, I. I, I mean. The the stuff in that movie, like some of it is, is laughable for sure, but then you, you get parts where it's it's just you don't know where the movie's going. Like uh, the dance hall scene, for example, where uh, at one point the fearless vampire killers of the titular you know nature and their young accomplice who they're trying to save, played by the late Sharon Tate, are trying they're trying to masquerade and fit in at a vampire ball, which it, to me was silly enough. Uh, the only thing I can liken it to is if you've ever seen the movie The Max, and they have what's called the Player's Ball, which is a very famous scene in urban cinema now. And that was the only thing that came to mind that it reminded me of, because I, I couldn't figure out why vampires, of all people, would get together and wear powdered wigs and have, you know, a, a very, uh, 
you know, glamorous ball, nor why they would have mirrors set up in the hall. Well, you know, why Why do scenes like that have to make sense? You know, it's a Polanski film, right? No, never mind that there's a sequence almost exactly that same way in the movie Van Helsing, which we will get to next week when talking about bad Draculas. Uh, in a bit of guilty pleasure, I actually enjoy that movie as a popcorn movie. As kind of a fun send-up to the Universal Monster movies, there's just some things about it I really don't care for. Oh, have you, you seen that like one? No, 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 I'm talking about Van Helsing. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I've seen Van Helsing, and uh, I wish I hadn't. <laughs> I can kind of enjoy it as a popcorn flick, but it's one of those that maybe could have been so much more than it actually wound up being. Uh, I, I think un- Unrealized Potential is something that we're, we run rampant with here on this on this show. Yeah, definitely. But uh, one of the other vampires that we kind of talked about a little bit, and uh, well, you know, let's get this. Let's just kind of get this one out of the way. The Anne Rice series of Vampire Chronicles, her gothic stuff, features primarily the vampire Lestat. And I'll say this, I'm not a huge fan of Anne Rice. I'm not a huge fan of Lestat as a character, even. I mean, to me, that that whole series is just a... Uh, it's kind of like Twilight aimed at a slightly older audience and trying to maybe walk more of an edgier line, but it just isn't isn't willing or able to go further into it, so it just kind of winds up uh, like a PG zombie movie, for want of a better phrase. I mean, it just it never quite commits one way or the other to the tone that it wants to establish or its content, and it just it kind of falls flat for me. Yeah, I, I read the two, I read two of the novels. I read I read the actual interview with the vampire book, you know, and I, I read Queen of the Damned, which also had a movie made, and the less said about that, the better. Oh uh, yeah, poorly uh, to go out. For those of you who don't know, it was it, Queen of the Damned, a movie starring a former pop star, Aaliyah, and she died not too long before its release. Uh, I believe she had, was in a car accident. I could be wrong, though. But she was the main star, the leading role, and it, it was just really sad because she'd actually done a bit of other acting work that wasn't awful, and that movie was just so bad. It was all over the place, just so bad. Yeah, through, through again, through no fault of her own, mind you. But yeah, those, no, those I, novels. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Those novels and those and those films are really, you can see the definite relationship there between and draw parallels between those and Twilight, and that the the protagonist of Lestat is initially thought to be this monster, but then they kind of make him more of an antihero than anything else, and he goes out of his way, and even when he first becomes a vampire, to to do nice things for his family, and you know. He, pays off his old boss's debts and buys the theater that he worked at and kind of, you know, loses sight of what the vampire was, you know, invented for. And it's to, it's to be this, this, you know, this evil entity that was human at one point but is no longer human despite the appearance, despite everything else. This is not a human. This is an evil being bent on, you know, destruction and drinking blood and feeding. No, I agree. I think... The notion of you know the romanticizing of vampires is it, it's a dangerous thing because it's so easy to take it uh, as, you know a bit too far and you lose what makes them interesting and intriguing and that and in another odd bit of credit I'm going to throw out to Twilight they actually manage not to do that I mean yes you have the whole Cullen family that's and their you know support group of vegetarian vampires or what have you but. The, they also it's also made very clear that the vampires that don't subscribe to that way of life are not 
to be screwed around with. They're they're pretty serious. And yeah, the Collins were not the norm there. Yeah. Whereas Lestat is kind of he, he's a bit off the mark for other vampires within that world, but he's not that far. You know, he's maybe a He's maybe a tad odd as opposed to like the crazy cat lady. <laughs> okay. If you got a, you know, within the setting of like a town, if you're looking at, you know, if you take the character of Lestat and you put him in one va- in a vampire town, like you know something like you know even like the Twilight World or uh, the world of Salem's Lot from Stephen King, most vampire worlds, you would he would be akin to the crazy cat lady, who makes no sense whatsoever. Within the context of Anne Rice's world, he's maybe the guy with a couple of odd ticks who, like, was in a bad car wreck or was traumatized in a war or something. And he's maybe something of an oddity, but he's not that far off the mark. Whereas with others, he's the crazy cat lady. That is the single you... best analogy we've made yet on this show. I am so proud that it's been a part of it. <laughs> well, I'll try to break it out at some other point then. Um, since we talked a little, since I just mentioned uh, Salem's Lot, I haven't seen the movie, although I know it adapts very, it changes very little from the book. I have read the book more than once, uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot. So, since you've seen the movie, uh, you can maybe speak to some of the things as far as that goes that I can't. When discussing, if you in the forward to, or forward or afterward, one of the two of that of Salem's Lot, I believe, or it's in Dance Macabre, and I'm misplacing it, which could very well be, but. Stephen King talks about the kind of vampire he wanted to create, and this maybe goes to the kind of dichotomy of vampires or their versatility, because he talks about being a bit being scared by Dracula, who is very kind of a menacing figure, but at the same time, he's described more than once as sipping delicately at someone's veins. He's still very much a gentleman. And yes, he's scary, but he's kind of refined. And then he goes on to mention that in pulp graphic novels, pulp comic books, when he was a kid, they had vampires who would tear people's throats out and install taps where their heads used to. I mean, just very, very gory and brutal, and as was kind of typical of horror comics of the time. And that those particular vampires didn't just scare him, in a direct quote here, they fucking terrified him. And he, he said that he made an effort to kind of create a hybrid between those two styles of vampire within Salem's Lot, and for my money, he did a very good job. I mean, Barlow remains an extraordinarily menacing figure, and he's kind of like we talked about with you know some of the 30 Days of Night vampires. You look at him, and yeah, he looks human enough. I mean, the form is still there, but there's something just off about him, and you can recognize it immediately. Yeah, and, and in the film adaptation, the guy doing the special effects is one of the legends of you know, horror special effects, Tobe Hooper, who's done so many movies and has so many credits and great work to, to his name. Uh, initially, when you see the vampire for the first time in Salem's Lot, when you see Barlow, it's like Nosferatu with the volume turned up because they were able to do more with the advanced technology of the time. He still has, you know, appendages like a human and a head and, you know, eyes and nose and a mouth, but, man, nothing remotely human-looking other than that. The teeth are, are ramped up from what Nosferatu was. His skin is more of a bluish color than what we saw with Nosferatu. And the type of feeding he does, you don't see him, you know, gently caress the victim and all of a sudden just hang on their neck. They won't show it to you because TV wouldn't let you show what Stephen King wrote him doing in that book because it was that graphic. And they didn't want to tone it down either. And that, again, goes to kind of the theory that it's the things you don't see that are sometimes more terrifying than what you actually see. 
because oh, it's yeah, left to your imagination. And when you're put into that position, you tend to have a worst thought possible process going on. And, it, you know, the, the the vampire Barlow, oh, my goodness, what a, what a horrifying creature he was. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a good adaptation. The whole thing is actually on YouTube if you search for it. Somebody's not been nice enough to put it up since it hasn't been released on DVD yet. But really, and the vampires in that movie, uh, there are some of the townspeople who get turned and, you know, are, are then brought to a hospital or cemetery. And they, the thing that they did that I found different from what they usually do and worked is they give them these soulless, pupilless eyes that are just locked on to whomever they're talking to. And it is so horrifying. My God. Well, for me, I think the scariest part of that came, and it, you say they don't change anything too much. So I'm, I have this picture in my head of probably the scariest sequence in the book for my money is the uh, bus driver of the local school is cornered in the, I think it's the junkyard is where he's he is at the time. He's cornered within his school bus by all of the kids that he drives, and he's kind of a jackass. As you, To be fair, I think most bus drivers suffer like that because they're exposed to small children all day long, and that is not good most of the time but the guy's kind of a jackass and all of the small children and you know we're talking the primary school and they're all now vampires and they ambush him on his school bus and that whole sequence you know with you know staring pupilless eyes on these giggling children as they surround the bus and just come in and you know eventually they tear him apart but you know that that's some scary stuff man uh you know whenever you talk about you know oh no vampires you know they're not they don't have to be, you know, no, you know, you just got to see it done right, and it will scare the hell out of you. Yeah, they, they actually did omit that from the series, but what they did not omit is at one point the, the main child actor in the, the film is, is Lance Carlin, who plays the role of Mark, who's the lead child in the, the novel and the story. And uh, Mark's friend one night is, is out alone and, of course, is taken by Barlow and vampirized, and... There's a point in the movie where, and it's in the, the book too, where there's just a tapping on Mark's window at night, and Mark, you know, can't believe what it is. He doesn't know what's going on. Why is there tapping on my window? And all of a sudden, you see this vampire child, and it's just levitating outside of his bedroom window on the second floor of the house in a night in like a long nightshirt with just these graphically distorted features, but you can still tell it's his friend, and the kid is so horrified and. The window opens and there's smoke around, and he's just waving Mark to him so he can feed on him. It is terrifying. Yeah, that that that's a great sequence. The vampire, you know, levitating outside the window, and of course it's been done. It was done in the Lost Boys as well, which, you know, I I caught some flack because from Mark Radlich because I mentioned that I mentioned some of my issues with Twilight, and he said, oh, you you're like everyone else. You just you just go. Why can't every vampire movie be the Lost Boys? And I don't. I say. I said it there. I'll say it here. I'm not a huge fan of the Lost Boys movie. I'm sorry. I know why people are. I can agree to disagree here, but I don't much. I didn't much care for it. But they do it, and they have a, a scene very much like that in that movie. It's in the Stephen King book. It's in Salem's Lot. Um, one of my favorite Simpsons Halloween shorts, uh, of course, is the one with the vampires and. Bart on the outside tapping on the window to get Lisa to come talk with him, followed by one of the greatest Simpsons gags of all time, I think. Bart comes in, and he's going to bite Lisa, and Homer comes in, and they come in, don't bite your sister, and hey, wait, you are a vampire. And then Grandpa Simpson busts in and goes, quick, we have to kill the boy. And he's got the wooden stake and the mallet, and then Marge pokes her head in and goes, how do you know he's a vampire? And Grandpa goes, he's a vampire? Ah! That, that was Treehouse of Horror, I want to say three, which is uh, still awesome to this day. 
Oh yeah, I, I love that. That's one. I can't remember. Yeah, that. Oh, that's the one where the setting is in the gallery. That's also got the uh, gremlin on the side of the bus. And what's the other one? I can't remember it. Because they they said it with Bart uh, hosting like the old uh, uh, night gallery anthology television show. So he's stopping in front of paintings, and one of them is the school bus. And then the last one. I think the other one might be Homer Simpson and the Devil, where he Uh, sells his soul for a donut. I don't think it's in that one, but that's my I think that's my all-time favorite (laughs) Halloween show. But it might be, uh, and I'm just misremembering. But well, I think Mr. Burns makes a great vampire in that short one too. I mean, there's never been a better vampire. The fact that he already got Nosferatu's features doesn't hurt. I know. You know. I don't think there's much. There's a lot better vampire than Mr. Burns. You know, if you were to create a vampire, he's just he's perfect. Yeah, making him a vampire doesn't make him seem all that less evil than what he was to begin with either. No, I, I'm going to do one of these things dedicated just to Mr. Burns because he's such a great villain. I think at some point down the That's line. But one of the other things about and you know, again, we try to frame this around vampires as bad guys, but they're not all, they don't necessarily always fall into that category. So stepping kind of outside the realm of all vampires are bad guys, I'm curious as to get uh, maybe some of your impressions, a vampire that's a hero and kind of what type of opposing force you need to have against the vampire to make it a believable hero. Because, you know, again, a hero is only as good as the villain. I mean, that, I maintain that. That's kind of my philosophy here. So if you have a vampire as the hero, as kind of the sympathetic role, what do you, in your opinion, what is a good one as an example? And what kind of opposing force do you need Do you need against it? Well, I think I think one of the ones we talked about prior to air is, is one of the better characters we've seen. And actually, he was a better character after a reinvention was uh, Blade, the titular hero of the movie series, the comic series. Uh, best known probably for the Wesley Snipes movies, but I, I think that right there is a great example of a vampire who is the hero and is the vampire slayer. Now, I agree. We definitely have to talk about Blade as far as this goes. Um, so, as far as Blade goes, I didn't realize this for quite some time, actually, but my first exposure to Blade came in the old Spider-Man the Animated Series. There's a series of episodes, uh, three or two or three, I think, an old 30-minute you know, Saturday morning cartoon, but one of... Uh, a friend of Peter Parker's becomes a vampire, and he has bluish skin, and he has these suction cup-like things on the palm of his hand, and that's how he absorbs plasma. Can't show by on a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, it's true. And in the course of this vampire, and they're trying to find a way to help him and whatnot, and Blade makes an appearance to hunt down this vampire because that's what he does, and he has the laser sword and the motorcycle that will go up vertical walls, and again, it, it's him, and it's and Whistler's there too, and it was and. It, I didn't realize it until, again, much later that, oh, wait, that's actually Blade, because it was much later that I saw him in the first Blade movie with the great Chris Christopherson as Blade and Stephen Dorff doing a great job as uh, Eric Frost as the opposing force there in the first Blade movie. That's like, oh, wait, no, he was in Spider-Man, wasn't he? Because yeah, he did start in comics and he did do some crossovers. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Blade's a pretty interesting character because he he actually started off in the 1970s. Marvel Comics was very big to jump on exploitation bandwagons. And in the 70s, there were a lot of genres getting a lot of play in pop culture. There was the martial arts genre. So they invented Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, and Iron Fist. And they invented, they you know, to capitalize on the vampire craze, they had a comic called Tomb of Dracula. They had a horror series for a werewolf, horror series for Frankenstein. In the pages of the Dracula comic, they decided to experiment with a black exploitation character whose name was Blade. And Blade was very much a stereotypical kind of black exploitation movie character where 
he spoke jive and he had an afro and he dressed in bell bottoms and very discoed up. But it also happened that Blade was partially a vampire because Blade's mother was bitten by a vampire while pregnant. Uh, a vampire named Deacon Frost, who was portrayed in the movie by Stephen Dorff, like you said. Eric. Yeah, was, Sorry, I'm kicking myself for saying Eric and not Deacon, but minor difference. But we're here to talk about Blade, and uh, <laughs> Blade, Blade, because of his birthing, was granted certain immunities. But he wasn't fully a vampire. One of the big ones is he, what he's referred to as the Daywalker. He can walk through sunlight without any kind of harm being done to him. Uh, and because of his only half vampirical nature. He has a better time controlling his feedings, and he does this through the help of a veteran vampire hunter named Whistler in the movies played by the awesome Chris Christopherson. Uh, and they do this through a serum and ways of obtaining blood through things like pigs and what have you to keep him in check so that he doesn't feed on a human and give in to his dark side. Yeah, and you know, since we're talking about forces that you need to oppose a vampire and we're talking about Blade, I think we ha- we'd be horrifyingly remiss not to mention Blade 2, which, you know, as far... Okay, look, I have been on record before saying I love the work of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, Devil's Backbone, The Orphanage, of course, Pan's Labyrinth. The first two, the first Hellboy, not as much as the second Hellboy and whatnot, but I'm a huge fan of the man's work. He do, I think it's a crying shame that we still can't, for some reason, get a studio to support and finance him him making a movie of At the Mountains of Madness, but I'm also a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan, so there is that, too. But he took over the Blade franchise for the second installment, I believe. He may have done the first, too, but he uh, I love the second one, and a huge part of my love for the second one is they're referred to as the Reavers, the genetic mutation that is... It turns out it's created by the, the uh, Count Orlock-looking... Uh, vampire patriarch but you have i believe it's luke goss who does such a great job as the main revenant or not revenant reaver and those those you know the vampires in blade in the blade series they're pretty you know they're menacing they're not to be you, know, you don't screw around with but the monsters that they created with the reapers are just the next level of you know, the way their jaws come apart and the amount of blood as they feed it, it it's in you know, it, uh, the whole movie is framed more as an action movie, and I think it's kind of a good thing because if you put those monsters in a horror setting, you know, they're scary enough as it is. You know, you don't need to use a lot of the horror sensibilities and techniques to make them intimidating and scary. No, and it, it's such it's, it's so well layered because Blade is absolutely feared and despised by every vampire walking the planet because they know eventually he's going to come for them, and if he sees them, it's on. How bad must these Reavers be to the point where the vampires actually have to recruit Blade to help them kill these things so they can survive because they'd rather deal with him than the Reaver? And, of course, that particular group who's been trained to hunt Blade, led by the great Ron Perlman, who is a great vampire, but Ron Perlman's pretty much a great anything, I think. He's a great vampire, and what I love that Guillermo del Toro did here is he underlined the vampire character. Because finally, Blade and these guys are working together. They're getting through everything. And what happens? Ron Perlman turns on him as soon as it's convenient because that's what a vampire is. It is a soulless being just out for its own intentions. doesn't give a damn about paying debts. It's, it's a vampire. It's there to feed. Just like the old you know, proverb of the lady freeing the snake from the thorn bush and then getting bit after and saying, why did you bite me? I'm a snake. 
It's their nature. It's, it's what they it's are. It's in my nature. You knew what I was when you let me out. I, I exactly. always get a kick out of that particular proverb because it goes along. Everyone has a version of it, of course. Kind of the famous version of that one is the Aesop fable of the scorpion and the frog, where the scorpion goes along and comes to a lake, and he can't cross it, and there's a frog along there, and he asks the frog for a ride. The frog says, no, you're a scorpion, you'll sting me. And the scorpion replies, no, if I do that, we'll both drown. You know, that, that's stu- out, of, out of self-preservation, I have to not sting you, and the frog goes, oh, okay, so the scorpion gets on him, they get out about three feet into the lake, and the scorpion stings him, and the frog goes, why, now we're both dead, and the scorpion goes, it's in my nature, you knew what I was when you put me on your back. It's exactly what it is, and you you would think Blade would have been smart to it, but again, you know, you got to put your hero up a tree, and at that point, he'd been up the tree, he got back down, found out he was only at the second layer of the tree, and still had a ways to go. Yeah. And again, I forget who plays the vampire uh, Damaskinos in that one, but whoever it is does a great job as physically not being a threat to Blade. He's kind of he's an, a, a much older vampire. He again looks like Count Orlock. He has bereft of hair, has kind of the funky ears, stooped over, but he is still a very menacing and threatening character. And I yeah, almost I like want to the look master in Buffy to an extent. Yeah. And uh, it's such a shame, I think, looking back on that, that they weren't able to stretch him out for at least part of another season because, although, of course, the Master was physically quite strong as well, but he was scary enough to, you know, his first encounter when Buffy goes down into his lair is actually pretty, and he's just kind of messing with her as as she's trying to stalk him. That's still pretty, you know, for television especially, that's a pretty intense sequence there. Yeah, because and, and at the same time, too, Buffy is generally all that's standing, or so, so you're led to believe, between the Master's domination and, you know, the safety of the world. And for him to have such an easy, laughable time with her really puts that fear into the viewer. And he's played so well by Mark Metcalf, who most people know is either the maestro from Seinfeld or Niedermeyer from Animal House. That it's such a turn for what he, he did, but he did it so well. Uh, I know the original plan was to have him be a recurring villain over more than one season, but that they weren't sure they were going to get renewed, so they had to write a conclusion to it. And it, it's a real shame because he could have been used more, and he comes back a couple of other times. I mean, specifically, there's an episode in season three when Cordelia wishes that Buffy never came to Sunnydale. That you see the direct result of that is the Master rose successfully because the Slayer wasn't there to stop him, and Seeing him back is just awesome because he's such a different kind of vampire. Uh, of course, if we if they'd gone that route, then we wouldn't have got Angelus in season two, and that just you know Buffy without Angelus is just not worth watching. I think at that point, no. And and again, we talked about how awesome David Boreanaz is, and a lot of that is is him, but a lot of it's the character and how well layered the character is. Where the the reason Angel is initially a, a good guy, and we talked about Blade is a good guy, a vampire fighting with other vampires. Angel was very much in that same vein, although it was because he was cursed with a soul by gypsies and that he would be aware of all the evil he did and have to suffer and he was going to spend the rest of his life trying to right those wrongs and kind of atone for it. And the only way the curse would be broken would really screw with him because when he reached a moment of pure happiness that he would revert back to Angelus. Yeah, and I, I love watching David Boreanaz play Angelus. I mean... It, whether it's in Buffy season two or it's, it, the absolute highlight of season four of Angel, I think is when he gets to play Angelus again because Angelus is such a he's so you know, uh, he's kind of like Hannibal Lecter in the sense that you know he's evil but you can't help but watch and that's not the case with a lot of 
other, even evil you know, vampires, or it, since I just referenced Hannibal Lecter, the case of uh, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, you know, he's, you know, in some, you know, arguably even more evil than Hannibal, in, especially as he's presented. But Hannibal's the one you, you, you know he's evil, but you can't not watch him, and that's kind of how I feel about Angelus. Yeah, that was, that was the entire fun of it. And, and, and you know, I, such a such a well-layered character, but when you have two completely opposite sides where you like watching the heroic angel bust up the party, but you, and you, you're in fear that he's going to revert back to Angelus, but then when he does, you say, hey, I'm going along for this ride. He's, he's the, the one you love to hate, and once you know the arc is coming to an end, you're, you're cheering that he's going to be angel again, but inside you're saying, you know, please don't let it happen because then the fun's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And since we've been talking about Blade a little bit, I do want to throw... At, we kind of mentioned that, you know, the third Blade movie is just kind of god-awful from start to finish. And we will discuss that more next week because they have a version of Dracula within that particular film, which is an interesting interpretation, let's say. But Why, you put that very, well, very nicely. Well... You know, I'll give kind of a spoiler. I don't hate that interpretation of Dracula. I don't like the way it's written, and I actually don't even mind Dominic Purcell. I think he's a fine actor. There's just, the issues with that version of Dracula have less to do with the theory and the actor, and more with the execution. But you also have Triple H as the vampire, and we'd be remiss not to mention everyone's favorite RVD burying. He's got to be the focus of everything, even though he hasn't won a pay-per-view match since July of last year give or take. We'd be remiss not to mention Triple H, I think. Jarko and, uh, Grimwood. The the uh, Metal Fangs, because, hey, you got to have some bling in there, right? Surprised they weren't built out of shovels. <laughs> oh, yeah. And to me, the fact that he got beat by Ryan Reynolds just removes any credibility of that particular character. I mean, I don't... I don't uh, you know, you know what, I'm... I'm not a big... Uh, I'm not a big hater on Triple H. I, 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 oh, me you know, I think there was a... I think there was a time where it was logical. I think that time has passed by at least a decade. But, you know, we'll get more into Blade 3 next week. But there's a character in there, too, when you're talking about heroic vampires. And Ryan Reynolds played Hannibal King was the name of the vampire. And I was really disappointed with that iteration because I think Hannibal King is a very cool character. He's a hard-drinking detective who, it just so happens, he was vampirized by the same guy who got Blade's mother, Deacon Frost. And... He's been on this collision course trying to track him down, but because he doesn't have the resources of being, you know, centuries old, he's had to resort to becoming a private detective in order to make a living. And he's a really sloppy Sam Spade not kind of guy, but he, he somehow always ended up in these adventures where his vampiric nature would be pulled out by the end of it. The thing I like it most, too, is if you've ever seen the show Forever Night. Uh, yes, actually. my Both my parents are huge fans of that show. I've grew up kind of watching elements of that, so... Yeah, the yeah, I'm Forever Night show, was, was, he was a police officer vampire who, of course, conveniently worked the graveyard shift investigations, and normally he would just try to get it by by doing regular detective work, and then eventually it would be revealed that there was some kind of malevolent force behind everything, and he would have to resort to being a vampire and give in to that savage nature a little bit in order to right the day. And Hannibal King was almost kind of a precursor to that, and to see what they did with him in the... Blade movie where he was just a, a you know regular vampire hunter who had been bitten and not totally turned was really a shame. Uh, he had been turned. They turned him back. They had developed their cure by that. Yeah. Point. Well, it, to make matters worse, he's joking half the time because he's Ryan Reynolds and hey, he's got to be funny, right? 
Well, allegedly funny. Uh, that, that's up for debate. But yeah, I don't find him all that funny. But again, the point being, he's making a lot of jokes. Phrase it that way. Yeah, and not the good ones either. Hannibal King was a very self-deprecating character who understood his position in life. This guy is just kind of your wisecracking. What if Spider-Man was a vampire hunter kind of guy? And it, it really kind well, of you know Blade is a hard-hitting action hunter. It's yeah, the real Spider-Man, is, not the. Toby Maguire and or Andrew Garfield versions where no not the not the crying pussy Spider Man but the the wide tracking comic book variation that we love. I can't I can't imagine why they couldn't impart that level of wisecracking humor that Peter Parker has into those movies because it's such a huge part of his character. Because apparently and, he's being a crying pussy is attractive to the teenage girls who they want to rope into the movies this summer. Uh, I guess I mean I was about crying pussy. I was just like, when. I first saw the preview for The Amazing Spider-Man, and Andrew Garfield is Spider-Man, of course, and the thug pulls out that knife, and he goes, oh, you found me, You found my one weakness. It's very small knives. I went, yes, there's Peter Parker. There's Spider-Man, but no, that's like the only one he gets in the whole movie, which was horribly depressing. Yeah, but we we were talking about, you know, yeah, Nick Knight and Forever Precursor to Hannibal King and what a bad job they did with him. But they, there is a litany of, of heroic vampires in literature, and I think part of it is, is I think part of it was because you could tell that people tend to love these characters, even, and, and the majority have been written as evil. When you go towards Dracula, no, you know Count Orlock, and and you know evil vampires over and over and over again, that the, they formed attachments to them. And I think that the creative thought behind it was, if they love the bad guys so much, they gotta love the good guys quite so much. But really, the good guys haven't been able to create that enduring legacy that the bad guys have, with very few exceptions. Some of those being, you know, Blade and Angel that we spoke of. Well, and I think you have to, in the case of an enduring kind of vampire hunter, you have to go with um, Van Helsing. At least the name. I mean, the, the because the character has been interpreted a bunch of different ways. But you know, he's the other, you know, kind of. He's the other one that people recognize when you're talking about vampire hunters. They know who Van Helsing is. Yeah, and, and you know, we'll talk more about that. Only, when, he's the human one too. Yeah, he's just there's nothing special about Van Helsing, and we'll uh, we'll only kind of naturally talk more about that as you know, next week because he's the primary opposing force to Dracula. Yeah, but there's yeah, forever night to try great, to recreate those. Yeah, you, you those, those heroic vampires, and they just don't stick. It's true, and uh, it's just kind of sad because it shouldn't be that hard. But we've hit on a lot of the major kind of vampire mythologies here. Um, we talked a li- we talked a bit earlier about Thirty Days of Night, and one of the if I can just mention that I saw that in theaters. I paid money for it. Kind of wished I hadn't because I don't feel it was worth the price of admission. But one of the big problems I had was the head vampire, uh, the leader of that clan, and I know I've seen the actor, but I, I don't think I've ever bothered to look up his name. He doesn't look menacing. To me, the only vampire in that group that looked menacing was the large, bald one who got fed into that like wood chipper device. And especially with vampires, especially the type of vampires they were going for with that, the look is so important for my money, and... I'm just kind of curious with you. Uh, apart from any of the ones that we've mentioned, do you have any vampires that fit that? You know, their appearance sticks out in your mind. I'll, I'll say this, and it, it's not to come off as, as silly or anything like that, but you've probably seen it. I would imagine. If you haven't, I'm shocked. But most of the people listening, if you're a vampire fan, you've probably seen the movie Blackula. If you haven't, basically, it breaks down as uh, a prince named Mama Waldi of an unnamed African nation is doing business with a European named Count Dracula. 
who he believes is going to help him end the slave trade in Africa. Instead, Dracula wants to enhance the slave trade. He wants to take Mamuelde's wife and make her his concubine. Mamuelde fights. Dracula vampirizes him and traps him in a tomb. He gets freed years later in modern-day Los Angeles. When Mamuelde transforms into Blackula, as he's dubbed by Dracula, the change that takes over him is something that I found very odd and something I haven't really seen replicated in that he almost takes on a more werewolf kind of a change where his eyebrows become very bushy, his hair gets higher, and he all of a sudden develops very large mutton chops, which he doesn't have when he's you know, not in vampire form. I don't know why they thought this was the idea to make William Marshall more terrifying or explain the change, but that one has always struck out to me as just so bizarre. Yeah, that's, uh, that was an odd choice as far as I, that goes. I, I, I've never been able to understand it. You know, maybe they, you know, it could have been the budget, to be perfectly honest. They might have ran out of money to do all the prosthetics, and he was supposed to have a full beard, but he wound up just with the mutton chops. I, I, I would I would guess, but aside from that, I think we talked about the prosthetics that were used in Buffy, and we talked about the Lost Boys. The Lost Boys is really the first type of time I've seen those types of prosthetics used, where it just kind of arches the, the, the skin in between the, the two eyes above the bridge of your nose and changes the eyes to an extent and the, the fangs come out. And it, it's subtle, but it's different enough that it's going to frighten you when it happens. And I think that was what Whedon kind of drew from in visualizing his vampires. So I think we have to give a little bit of credit to the, the effects of the Lost Boys for making that happen. Oh, I agree. And the, the other... I agree with that. I don't care much for the movie. That doesn't mean I can't acknowledge you know some of the good things about it and whatnot. I you know, and you get having their physical appearance change. You know, Kiefer Sutherland going from looking like Kiefer Sutherland to suddenly having the more pronounced forehead and the scowling eyebrows <laughs> and it's effective. You know, I'm not going to say it's not. Yeah, we we also won't say that Kiefer changed all that much in the in the change, but uh, true, I think you're more Kiefer Sutherland as menacing as he looks without it. But the, the other movie I was going to bring up, and it's not really a traditional vampire movie, it's not thought of as a classic one, is From Dusk Till Dawn, where the vampires in that movie take on a much more rodent, bat-esque appearance upon changing, where they do appear human for at least a little while, and as soon as there's some kind of blood that's spilled, they all transform and get you know, very massively big and develop... It almost, I know it's supposed to look like a bat, but they almost wind up looking more like the creature from the Black Lagoon and Amphibian in their in their features. And they have the spots on them, and some of them develop wings, and some of them develop more like a bat-type body with the T-Rex arms. It was definitely different, and I applaud them for doing that, because rather than you know do the traditional mold, they wanted to really amp up the effects. And, of course, they had Tom Savini working on the movie, who's an FX legend. And I think they did a pretty good job of creating something that looked terrifying in a, a, a modern-day world where the slasher flick had become in vogue and supernatural villains had kind of faded out. Uh, can I just say, you don't consider From Dust Till Dawn a vampire classic? I do, but I know that the majority of people tend not to for whatever reason, maybe because it's the involvement of Quentin Tarantino in it. or again, Come it on, came George out Clooney gets to year. kill... If I get to watch George Clooney shoot Quentin Tarantino, I'm okay with that. Plus it has Selma <laughs> Hayek. I mean, come on. That movie I think any classic. movie with Selma Hayek is a classic, but that, that again, is, is part of my male nature kicking in because I am what I am, and that's all that I am. But I, I, it, it came about at a time when vampire movies, uh, aside from very few big-budget attempts, were very out of, out of vogue. And 
what had become involved, especially during the 80s, was the slasher flick, the supernatural slasher who kills people by maiming them. And not necessarily vampires or werewolves or zombies were, were really featured as, as primary villains and had fallen out of favor. I think From Dusk Till Dawn was a good attempt at trying to get that back into play. Oh, yeah, I agree. I, th- that's one of my favorites. Um, I want There's a couple others that I want to touch on here since we're in, you know, we're not in wrap-up mode yet, but we're in the last, you know, we're within the last half hour, so there's a few that I want to touch on. And I'm going to kind of spring this one on you, but have you ever, do you watch Supernatural at all? I've seen episodes here and there, mostly the ones dealing with the devil. Okay, because in season six, um, there's a whole arc where they're attempting to locate the progenitors of various uh, monster species, and they refer to them as alphas. And the guy they got to play the vampire alpha, I thought, did a great job. He's he kind of invokes Count Orlock without well without having any excessive makeup on him or any at all. I mean, you know, apart from the basics, I think and. He also has kind of the Gus Fring, Hannibal Lecter, very still, very serene quality about him until he decides he's going to kill you, in which case he suddenly goes from normal to terrifying. But I would, you know, I would encourage you to kind of look. I, just, I enjoyed his performance there and that particular version. And their take on vampires in general is actually pretty interesting. Um, oh, how could I forget about Daybreakers? You've seen, I assume you've seen that, right? Daybreakers is the one with uh, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, Sam Neill, uh, William Defoe's yeah, in it. I did see that. Yeah, I I have to give a shout out as far as this goes to Sam Neill's character in that because in a world full of vampires, he somehow still manages to be kind of the most menacing and the most. I mean, he I I like that whole movie because you know the whole the the notion of vampires feeding on vampires and then turning into monsters like they do is a real interesting one and. I like that whole notion of, you know, what if everyone became a vampire? And he's, you know, Sam Neill, great actor, still manages to be kind of the most menacing and intimidating, despite not being a member of the military or, you know, any of the a physical match for some of the other ones. He's still, you look at Sam Neill and you listen to him talk and you know, yeah, he's the guy you got to be worried about. I, I applaud that film so much for its originality because it's 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 obviously a concept that has to come into play at some point. What happens when the vampires win and when they succeed and when they're the dominant species and humans are few and far between? Where do you go? And then you have the idea of vampires feeding on other vampires and becoming an alpha species, and and it was so good. And it, Sam Neill, whenever you give him the ball and tell him to run with it in an evil part. Is fantastic going all the way back to when he played the adult version of Damien from The Omen in the final chapter. This is very much like his role there, where he's kind of understated, not the most physically uh, uh, opposing guy, not, you know, in any type of position to launch missiles at you or anything like that, but he is perfect at menacing you subtly. Yeah, I there's something to be said. And plus, he's in a position of power, and everyone knows, and he's not afraid to remind you of it. And yet, that's a... Daybreaks is a really good one that you know, I've enjoyed more than once. Um, uh, okay, we would be remiss, I feel, also not to mention Barnabas from uh, Dark, Shadows. Dark Shadows. Not the crappy Johnny Depp remake. That is god-awful, as about 50% of Tim Burton's work is. Now, it, for those of you who haven't seen it, the original 70s television show is actually... you get If you watch it now, there's a fair amount of humor, but it's unintentional comedy. Which can be some of the best. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it Barnabas is not originally designed as the kind of comedic, bumbling fish out of water that they had Johnny Depp play him. 
So I mean, uh, I haven't seen all of it, but my mom's a big fan of it, so I'm aware. So I mean, have you seen any of the original television series, Pat, or am I? I I saw pretty much the entire run of it because my dad was such a fan of it, and growing up, you would subject me to afternoons of soap operas. But thankfully, that one was one that was tolerable. Uh, yeah, I, I saw almost the entire run of Dark Shadows, and Barnabas was not even originally intended to be a part of the show. Dark Shadows was supposed to focus on just this family living in what was perceived to be a haunted mansion in the New England area, and when ratings were dipping lower and lower every week, the writers were trying to just think of what they could do, and they thought it would be fun to put a vampire on, and so they invented the character of Barnabas Collins, who is an aunt, who's a, you know an ancestor of the titular Collins family living in the home. And it wound up being such a hit that Barnabas became the star of the show. But we talked about the notion of vampires being romanticized. The one thing I can say Dark Shadows maybe did better than anything else is they did make Barnabas sort of a tragic figure in that he was constantly searching for this lost love, Josephine, that had killed herself when he was vampirized and she found out about it. Or Josette, excuse me. But Barnabas in order to try to win her back, went to just evil, nefarious means constantly. You know, he tried to turn women into his vampire bride and force them to live as Joe said. He threatened the doctor with her life that she needed to come up with a cure for him or she needed to find a way to memory wipe these other girls to make them believe they're Joe said. Constantly fed on people. Uh, dealt, and they would make him an anti-hero at times, but when it was convenient. But he was really a vampire who, at nature was absolutely evil and despicable and would do anything to reach his own means. And thank heavens for that, because like I said, a huge failing of the movie, I mean, among other things, was the notion that he's not... He, you know, Johnny Depp's version, the version that they portrayed in the movie, was not like that at all, and it was a huge detriment to the entire production, I feel. And I mean, it, yeah, if I anyone's see seen, New Dark if you've seen it and disagreed... Feel free to let me know. I, I didn't see it, but I've heard it was very much a uh, fish-out-of-water comedy story, almost like uh, when you had classics in the 80s, like My Best Friend is a Vampire, but not anywhere near as well done. Okay. We need to talk about... Um, I'm kind of surprised I went this long without mentioning it, but one of the best vampire movies ever, I feel. I mean, and feel free to disagree with me, but um, we need to talk a little bit about Ely from Let the Right One In, because... Oh, Yeah. Child vampires are kind of inherently scary just by their nature, and Ely was kind of a step above. She was you, you saw her, and you just kind of knew something was off, even if you didn't know everything about it. And they just kind of did the slow burn with her, and I mean, she would she had fed on people, she'd attacked a couple of people, and there's a couple of there's that great sequence where she attacks the guy under the bridge, and again, being you know, um, I think it's Swedish cinema. It is. Yeah, it, I couldn't. It, it's Swedish or Danish, or you know, it, it's Swedish, but you know, I, I couldn't remember which one it was specifically. But it has the same sensibilities. So, more is kind of made out of the the artistry of the this hot red blood laying on the falling snow than out of her ripping the guy's throat out. But you know, she's still a vamp. She's still quite scary when she goes into you know vampire mode. And the fact that at the end, and I apologize if I'm spoiling this for anyone who hasn't seen it. At the end of the movie, when the poor kid who's been picked on is being held under the water by the uh, the older brother of the kid who... He, he broke his nose with a pole. The kid was bullying him, and he fought back. And smacked him in the face with this thing, and now his older brother wants to get back. And he's holding him under the water with one hand, and in the background you see his other arm drop into the water. And it's out of focus, but it's just slowly falling through this pool. 
and the red is spreading out, and this poor kid doesn't even know he's been saved yet because he still feels the other arm on top of his head. Yeah, I, I can actually say that that's one of the few movies where I've seen where they did the the American adaptation and still kept the heart of the movie and did it well. Uh, they did the American version, just let me in, and had a very good cast with veteran actors like Richard Jenkins, uh, Elias Coteus, and good kids to adapt the roles from the Swedish version. But I do feel the Swedish version let the right one in is superior. And the portrayal of the, the little girl who's seemingly harmless, if not just a little strange, as an absolute predator who is capable of mind-numbing amounts of damage to a human and just the most vicious feedings you'll see where the walls are splattered with blood everywhere. So phenomenal. And at, at its heart, you know, it, it's kind of a story of friendship and acceptance and anti-bullying, but at the same time, you realize that once it's over, because her, her long time, I guess you'd call a caretaker, for lack of a better word, is dead, the boy takes on the role. So she's not totally doing this as a, as a heroic gesture. She needs a new caretaker, and she knows he's the only one right now capable of doing it. So it's an act of self-preservation. Yeah. Can't go out in the sun. Can't lure victims in during the day or, you know, can't do it herself all the time. So it's really uh, – and there is that, that notion of friendship and camaraderie, but really it's an act of self-preservation by the vampire, who at its nature is a hunter and a survivor. Yeah, and – I didn't see the. I haven't seen the remake yet. I know I need to because I've heard you know, good things about it. But for my and again, since I haven't seen the remake, I can't speak to this one. But one of the other sequences in the Swedish original that I personally uh, still sticks with me is the sequence where the kid and again, I, pardon me for forgetting his name. He's talking to her and she's outside of his door and she says, "You have to invite me in." He says, "No, I'm not going to invite you in." But he kind of motions her inside because he wants to see what'll happen. And she steps into his house without being invited, and very slowly she starts shaking. Uh, the whole building kind of starts shaking. Blood starts coming out of her eyes and her fingernails, and she—it just seems like she's very slowly being torn apart because she's not supposed. That's not a place she's supposed to be. And, and again, that's playing to the the common mythology that we know uh, or should know of vampires which oftentimes gets too lost in the translation of what they're trying to do. So I, I really enjoyed that part of it as well. Yeah, and you know, again, uh, it's nice to see that you know, a good vampire movie can still be made. And again, I'm not trying to be down on the Twilight movies here, for those of you who are fans of them. There was, I haven't seen any of them, but from what I understand, uh, there are some good points to especially some of the later ones. But to see it, when it gets done really right, it's, it's a great thing to watch. And uh, apparently, I haven't seen one of them, but apparently both of those are quite good at it. Now, the other one I want to, well, another one of the ones, there's a couple that I want to get to here as we're kind of wrapping up. I want to get your impression of, because I haven't seen it yet. Um, oh, where'd it go? I had it written down. Crud. Lot yeah. there, folks. You can't eat it. No, you can't. Um, I can't find It'll come to me again in a minute here. But, um... Well, since, uh, again, this is another one that we'd kind of be remiss not to mention, at least in passing, since it's popular and it's coming back, ladies and gentlemen, True Blood, which is uh, an interesting concept of, you know, vampires being out there and now coming out and wanting to be part of, you know, the rest of the world. And at least that's where it starts. And, and of course, it goes on to encompass a lot more than that. But I haven't seen a whole lot of True Blood, so I'm kind of going to rely on you, assuming you've seen a lot of it. But how do the vampires in that, as far as that goes, stack up? 
I watched the first two, two seasons, two and a half seasons of True Blood as a regular viewer. Uh, I thought it was an interesting take uh, as far as vampires trying to integrate themselves into society in this, you know, small Louisiana community. Uh, it, it's based on a series of novels, the Suki Stackhouse Diaries or Journals or whatever you call them. Uh, Stella, you know, uh, Alexander Skarsgård is, is often given a lot of credit for his portrayal on the show of his vampire. But ultimately, I'm not a fan of True Blood. And I'll say this. I, I don't think it's anything to do with the vampires and how they're portrayed. I think it's a matter of it, it's trying to be an adult version of Twilight and acting as if it's better because it's violent and holds somewhat more true to the mythologies of the vampire. Somewhat more true. Everybody who well, bags on as Twilight... Far as, that goes, as far as that goes, I do have to say, I'll take Anna Paquin over, over Kristen Stewart. Uh, well, she looks like she showers, so that's a plus. But, the, <laughs> you know, the, the people who bag on Twilight because the vampires, nothing happens to them in the, in the sunlight are forgetting that in the very first episode of True Blood, vampires are filmed having sex. Now, you know, a staunch, you know, mythology of vampires and the one that stayed true is that vampires can't be captured on film or seen in the mirror because they don't have souls. So without explanation, vampires can easily be seen and photographed and viewed on video camera without any type of rationale behind it. So right there, you know, trying to pretend that True Blood is the greatest thing because it holds true to the myths and portrays vampires as they should be instead of Twilight is absurd. Uh, but I, I didn't like the expansion of the universe so fast in True Blood, and that's kind of what turned me off, where they've included uh, fairies uh, with, with all kinds of odd powers, and they constantly keep expanding the characters in the universe, and I, I just tuned out. I, I, I know it's popular, a lot of people love it, and that's great, but it's it's not ultimately for me. No, fair enough. I mean, I've seen a couple of episodes, but it just, you know, it didn't really kind of capture me or suck me in. Um. Okay, there it is. The other one, there's two more that I want to touch on, and I don't know how much you'll want to talk about one of them, but um, I another one that you know we'd kind of be remiss not to mention, at least as far as if you're a hardcore vampire fan goes, is um, Ed Lee from the Fright Night movie. Evil Ed. Evil Ed. Reimagined by Colin Farrell. I just... Actually, that was uh, Jerry Dandridge. What, in the second one? In the remake? No, in both uh, Jerry, Jerry Dandridge is the lead vampire. Evil Ed is initially portrayed by uh, I forget the actor's name in the first one, but in the second one it's uh, the kid who played McLovin. Oh yeah, you're right. Sorry, I got them confused. But yeah, Jerry Dandridge. So yeah, we do need to talk oh, about him. Jerry Dandridge. I mean, the original 1985 Fright Night, one of the better vampire movies, you know, by and large. I mean, yes, it is an 80s horror movie, so there are certain things that. You know, you can pick up on, but you know, you got Chris Sarandon as as Jerry Dandridge, and you know, you know, Prince Humperdinck being a vampire is not a bad thing, I think. The thing that made Chris Sarandon great is, you know, vampires have always had the perceived notion of they're very good-looking and charming people, and Chris Sarandon has very, you know, perfect features. He's got a strong jaw. He's got his hair is well coiffed, or whatever you want to call it. And when he actually does go into his vampiric nature, he has this ridiculous mouth of sharp fangs throughout. The long nose for two fingernails, total 180, uh, and really ramped up in the creature feature department on it. But but has that duality that makes some of the better vampires, and, and he just you know rocks it to a T. So since we talked about you know, how would you rate his as opposed to Colin Farrell's version of Jerry Dandridge in the 2011 remake? I didn't mind Colin Farrell's version really at all. Um, I, you know, to, to capture the, you know, Colin Farrell sitting on the couch watching The Real Housewives in New Jersey, 
I, I definitely saw that as something that Jerry Dandridge of 85 would be doing if, if it was, you know, on then. Because that's what he, he really was kind of a normal guy feeds and has evil intentions. Uh, but I, I think the difference in the movies is that they didn't give Farrell the leeway that they gave to Chris Sarandon, and they had much less screen time devoted to Colin Farrell for whatever reason than they did Jerry Dandridge uh, as Chris Sarandon played him. Uh, the, the newer version, which I really could not stand at all, uh, was much more focused on uh, the the Charlie Brewster character, Anton Yelchin, who I just find annoying and unlikable, whereas uh, William Randsdale was a lot of fun in the first movie. And I think because Chris Sarandon got more screen time and they realized that the vampire is a lot of a draw, they really wrote him a lot more layered and gave him more to play with in terms of the scenes where he would vampirize people, like when he approaches... Evil Ed in the alleyway after they walked uh, Amanda Bierce's character of Amy home, and he kind of just talks him down. You know, they won't pick on you anymore. They won't beat you up. I'll see to that. All you have to do is take my hand. And he's got his very normal appearance. And then all of a sudden, you see him extend the hand, and the fingernails and the ring are out, and the skin is somewhat ragged. And that—that—that's one of the better scenes in that movie. And Chris Sarandon just delivered every time. I think Colin Farrell's problem was he didn't get the opportunities that Chris Sarandon did in the new version, and I think that's where a lot of it fell flat. I liked his. I liked elements of what he did. I mean, that sequence when the kid's sitting there saying, "No, you can't come in unless I invite you in," and his response is, "Well, I could just blow up your house." Yeah, they, I mean, they made I liked, him just a lot more singularly menacing. Yeah, and which was kind of sad, but Chris Sarandon um, also did a great job portraying another one of my favorite villains. Uh, he did uh, Herbert? He did a version of Herbert West Reanimator, where he was the titular Herbert West, and just a fantastic job as a Lovecraftian character. And since we're under ten minutes, the other one I would feel a bit remiss, even though he's not a bad guy, and may kind of be off-putting as far as since this is a show focused on bad guys. But for anyone who's seen the Helsing, uh, whether you read the manga or have seen the television comic or follow the OVAs. If you've seen Alucard, to me, he's kind. He's, in a lot of ways, he is the perfect vampire. And part of that's because he's Dracula. So we might revisit this next week when we talk specifically about Dracula. But I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about vampires in general without talking about Alucard from Helsing. So do you follow that at all? Uh, or am I going to be solo here for a couple of minutes talking about this? I think you're going to be flying solo. The only real manga I've seen like that and followed to an extent was Vampire Hunter D. Another good one, but I, I would encourage you to find Helsing. Um, whether I'm sure you, it's on you, Netflix. You, um, it might be. You can probably order it and put it in your DVD queue to get it. To, but yeah, there there's two versions. The television, there was a limited run television series, uh, all animated, of course. But there's a limited edition run on television that was, ran for one season that towards the end diverges pretty dramatically from the source material and then... Because it's a popular manga, you have OVAs, uh, original video animations that come out uh, kind of with the as the new version as the new editions uh, come out. But um, Alucard is, to my mind, almost the perfect vampire. And again, it's revealed that he's Dracula, so I apologize if I spoil that for anyone. Once again, Alucard doesn't give it away. I know, I know. <laughs> he actually makes a couple of jokes about that throughout the course of it. But he, his character is very different. As far as you know, even from Dracula, I mean, since we'll talk, since Ian, we'll be talking about Dracula next week. He is portrayed as his whole goal is to find someone who can kill him, but he's so obscenely powerful 
He has magic at his disposal. You can't kill him. I mean, I don't think, you know, sunlight doesn't kill him. He's been decapitated, and that doesn't kill him because his power is based on the number of lives that he's taken. And he's taken, you know, millions of lives. And he's just so, you know, his whole goal is, and stated purpose is, you know, I want to find someone who can kill me. And he's actually in service to uh, the British, the Helsing family, which is a descendant of Abraham Van Helsing, is the one who captured him and you know, magically bound him to his family, is kind of how that works out. But some of his verbal exchanges with other characters, and just when you see him let loose with what he can do with his power, it's it's downright scary. He is, despite being a good guy on the on the right side, he can be absolutely terrifying if he wants to be. And everything I, I'm a huge fan of that whole series, and Alucard's a big part of that. So, All right, since we're under five minutes here, Pat, is there are there any others that you feel we've missed? Are there anyone any other vampires that you want to get in here before we start wrapping things up? Anything we've overlooked? I'll say this. If you've never seen it, there was a great made-for-television movie in the 70s called The Night Stalker. It centers around an investigative reporter named Carl Kolchak, played by Darren McGavin, who is stalking what's perceived to be a serial killer who believes himself to be a vampire. And they kind of seed about you the whole time throughout the movie that, okay, you know, this guy, he's a wacko, he's not actually a vampire. Until finally, you know, you see things like him getting shot at point-blank range and nothing happening to him. And finally, towards the end of the movie, the big climax, and spoiler alert, you know the show by now, you know we do spoilers, Kolchak breaks into the guy's house that he's been staying in after tracking him down. And finally, he's hiding in the closet at one point to not be found. And the guy peels the closet door open, and you see this menacing, you know, six-foot-five-inch figure who looks a lot like Killer Kowalski, if you're a wrestling fan. He looks a lot like Killer Kowalski, but with vampire fans, if Kowalski himself isn't terrifying enough. And then you know that this guy is legitimately a vampire, and he's been feeding on these girls throughout Las Vegas. And it's up to Kolchak to kind of save the day, because he's the only one crazy enough to believe this. But Janos Scorzini yeah, is the name of the vampire. That's Fantastic a great, portrayal uh, by Barry Atwater. Yeah, you're, that's a great made-for-television movie. It spawned a short-lived series, kind of sad. And, and the basis actually, for the X-Files, according to Chris, uh, Chris, Claremont, who, or Chris Cooper, who created it. Yeah, actually, the... If you haven't seen the X-Files vampire episode, it's hilarious. I mean, that that's a great show that balances humor with serious situations. And there's an episode that they do that focuses on, like, it, it, it turns out to be a small town that's populated entirely by vampires. Featuring Luke Wilson. I hate, Luke, I hate Luke Wilson. I really do. But Stop. Almost as much as I hate Owen Wilson. But God, okay, as long as you hate Owen more, that's all that matters. I can't hate Luke more. He's not been around as much. I mean, if Luke had more exposure, I'd probably hate him more because he's got the one look with his pinched face. But I can't I, – I don't hate Luke as much as I hate Owen. Owen's just been around a lot more. And so with more exposure comes more dislike. I mean, some of my favorite movies are movies where I get to watch people that I don't like die. I mean, that, for my money, that's a huge plus for both the movies Armageddon and Anaconda because, hey, Owen Wilson dies. I'm okay with this. So are you eventually going to convince everybody on a podcast that Owen Wilson is a bad guy? Owen Wilson's not the type of bad guy that should be provo- that should be praised or discussed. He's the kind of bad guy who you think, why do you keep making movies? You hear that, Owen Wilson? You're, you're not getting a podcast, so suck it. You don't get one. Vince Vaughn doesn't get one. Will Ferrell doesn't get one. Just because I hate you doesn't make you a bad guy. Because if, if I did podcasts based solely on who I hated, we'd have eight of them done, dedicated to Ben Stiller done by now. 
Well, that, that's what makes you the bad guy, Robert. My hatred for Ben Stiller, if properly channeled, could power small countries. I just I need to get yeah. that out there. Yeah, that's Taiwan. The hard times are over. Taiwan's not third world. I could I could power like um oh, what's that little South America or Central America? Ah, I can't remember. They're all little. They're all little. Yeah. Um, or, or one and of those just small made a like, number of enemies. I apologize. I used to know them all. I can't remember. Um, Costa Rica is pretty small. There's one. It's like one word, and I can't remember it for the life of. Or any of those small like um, I mean, I could power Vatican City for decades, which is its sovereign government. Or any of the small like former Soviet ones, like Latvia, Estonia. I could power them. But uh, my, my hatred for Ben Stiller knows no bounds. And he's ever played vampires. To... So he's got that working against him too. Yeah, I mean, uh, let me just say this: If I were the Hulk, the mention of Ben Stiller would make me destroy a small planet. Let's just put it out there. It's a shout out to Mark Radlich in our Hulk series. Well, that's pretty much going to wrap up this discussion of non-Dracula vampires. Next week, same day, same time, if that works for you, Pat. Same Pat time, same Pat channel. We will be discussing Dracula and all his various iterations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's more than enough of, <laughs> of all three to go around. Um, is there anything you want to plug this week, Pat? Uh, we don't have the Ground and Pound show this week because there's really nothing to talk about, so we d we're skipping a week with that. Um, your comic book podcast that you keep trying to get off the ground, how's that coming? Uh, grounded. Grounded <laughs> for the moment, waiting to take flight. Well, let me know if you ever get it going. I'm looking forward to that. You've got a couple of great guys as far as contributors go. I mean, both uh, Steve Gustafson and Sean Lelos have great columns in the 411 uh, music and TV zone, or movies and television, not music, that just once movies a week that talk. Alternate, alternate takes and comics 411. I read them every week. They're both fantastic, and I'm looking forward to see if we, all three of us can get on the same page and finally nail this thing down. Yeah, I, I was hurt a bit last week. Uh, all, it seemed everyone did a villain-themed column in the movie zone last week, and I wasn't invited. You're a trendsetter, man. What can you say? Well, plus, you know, it was. I actually enjoyed, um, I think it was whoever did, no, it might have been uh, Sean Lelos who talked about his favorite comic book movie villains. Movie villains? That was Sean. Yeah, and I just, I think I posted on his thread, wait a minute, You they were talking about bad guys, there was one on... I think their top five that week was movie villains, and for some reason they all thought Emperor Palpatine was ranked highly. And you, no, I'm the authority, people. You should ask me about these things. I demand consultation rights. Well, you know, they've spurned you, and that only serves to further your evil domination plans and give you more it, salt in the wound to really go ahead and take vengeance. It does. I'm going to find Larry Zonka. I'm going to take over the website. Then I'm going to make him do the same job that he has now, but for less money. After locking him into an unbreakable contract, because I know how to be evil in corporate America, too. So is there anything you want to plug this week, Pat? I uh, just remind everybody there's no Ground and Pound radio this Sunday, because the only review we'd have is Invicta, and no big news is broken this week. We will be back the following week, where we will actually have relevant topics to talk about. I was kind of sad we didn't get you on this week to talk about the downfall of Anderson Silva. Yeah, I, I thought about it, and as I, I watched the fight again afterward, thanks to the machinations of DVR, I got progressively angrier at Anderson Silva watching that fight and figured if I was going to talk, it would have been a profanity-laced tirade that nobody would have been safe from. Yeah, I, I agree. It's You know, it's one thing to drop your hands against Forrest Griffin, who has no punching power, and to goof around when you only you know that Talos Slade is going to shoot in and then flop to his back, but you, you can't fight like that against Chris Weidman. That's a bad idea. 
No, any, any guy with a relevant skill set, you, you shouldn't do as much as he did. And uh, watching it and then the post-fight interview, eh. if you want to talk about a bad guy, there's your bad guy right there. He just went from the, the number three heel spot to the number one heel spot. You think he passed Michael Bisbing finally, saying he doesn't want a rematch? Oh, he's passed Michael Bisping. Well, you know that as far as Dana White concerns, Chris Weidman is the number one bad guy because he robbed him of super fights, which we all know Anderson wasn't going to do anyway because GSP doesn't want to fight Anderson Silva, and Anderson Silva doesn't really want to fight John Jones. Yeah, but on the plus side now, he only has to pay his middleweight champion $50,000. It's true. All right, and yeah, no ground and pound this week. We'll return next week because we'll have news and a card to break down. As for me, locked in the guillotine every Friday... Uh, looking at news, relevant cards, uh, the whole nine yards in the MMA zone. Uh, this week I am breaking down UFC 162, the fall of the spider. I don't know, what would that make Weidman? What's the, what eats spiders? The skunk. Bird. Actually, skunks eat, skunks eat spiders. So Anderson Silva can be well, the skunk. That's true. He, he, the skunks, birds, whatever you want to go with, either way it fits. Also, I, was think, I was thinking specifically skunks because they feed on black widows. And, you know, Anderson's a spider and he's black. I don't know if he's a widow. No, because he changed his family's life, if you didn't hear him say that eight times in the interview. He had to put over America. Come on. He's going for the disingenuous heel run. And nobody beats the Rougeos. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so locked in the guillotine in the MMA zone on Friday. Uh, I am currently up against Todd Vogt in the MMA Factor Fiction settings. I believe I'm staring down my, like, fifth consecutive defeat. I'm the Leonard Garcia of Factor Fiction in MMA, folks. All right, and I disagree. I believe I believe you're the guy who gets robbed of the decision yet has earned it, as opposed to Leonard Garcia who does not earn the decision and gets the win. I just meant about I meant the losing streak, not whether or not I win on unwarranted decisions. Fair All right, enough. but that's going to wrap this one up. Talking about vampires, as we mentioned, next week, same time, same channel. We will be here talking specifically about Dracula. I'll have Pat back. It will be awesome. I encourage you all to look for that. I will also have my outro clip. I know I promised I'd have one this week. I didn't get around to it. Uh, I couldn't find the one I wanted, actually, and then I realized there was a better one about five minutes before we went on air, so I'll have it next week. I promise we will exit with Scarface saying, say goodnight to the bad guy. So, for, at the moment, for Pat Mullen, I am Robert Winfrey, reminding you all that the shadows are dark. That makes the light bright, people. Respect the villains. And I will see you next week, same time. Until then, have a good day.